Hi, I'm Joseph Feraldi. I want to thank you for joining us here at Bayside Chapel Online. Our prayer is that today's service will be a blessing to you, that it will encourage you in your journey with Jesus Christ, and it will help you to see all that God has in store for you. We would love to hear from you on how God is using this ministry to bless you, and we'd love the opportunity to pray for you. Just send us an email at amen at baysidechapel.org. Remember that you can stay in touch with us at any time. Just visit the App Store and search for our app at Bayside Chapel of NJ. Also, if God is using this ministry to bless you, we'd like to give you the opportunity to partner with us financially. Simply go online to BaysideChapel.org or use the Bayside Chapel app and choose whatever option works best for you. Enjoy today's message. So there was this book that was released some years ago. It's called The Ultimate Book of Heroic Failures. The Ultimate Book of Heroic Failures. It's a book entirely dedicated to people's blunders and, and mishaps and failures. For example, back in 2008, in a town in North Dakota, a little town in North Dakota, a, um, the mayor of this small little town was running unopposed for re-election. And he didn't win. Now, he didn't, it's, he didn't lose because somebody beat him. The reason he lost was because nobody showed up at the polls. And he even planned on voting for himself, but he got sidetracked tending to his crops, so he wasn't able to get to the polling station, so nobody won. That's, that's a pretty big failure. Then there's this one story in this book of, uh, of an elderly lady over in London. She had a cat, and her cat got stuck in the tree. So like in the movies, I guess when your cat gets stuck in the tree, you have to call the fire department. So she calls the fire department. They come, and they actually help her. They help get the cat out of the tree. She's so grateful for the firemen that she uh, makes some tea for them and some little treats, and they enjoyed it. They, they, they had a nice little time together, except when they went to go say their goodbyes, the firemen ran over the cat. The <laughs> ones that are laughing. It's, you're my kind of people. <laughs> so let me ask you this question. What story of yours would be featured in the ultimate book of failures? Maybe it would be that time you spent all that money uh, on that hobby that you were so passionate about, but then you gave up that hobby six months later. I think we've all been there with, with at least one thing. Or maybe it's the story of that exciting venture of yours that looked so promising, and you poured everything into it, your entire self into this, th this exciting venture, and you were so committed to it, but all that happened was it collapsed. Perhaps it was that bad choice that you made that set your life on a completely different trajectory than you thought. Or maybe the story for that book is one that you would never, ever submit for someone else to read. It's stories we all have, stories about our spiritual shortcomings or our moral shortcomings, right? That story that you have with the drugging, that story that you have with the cheating, with the lying, 
that story of yours with your violent outbursts or those harsh words of anger. See, the reality is no one is exempt from failure. Not one person. We've all experienced devastating failures and setbacks. We've all failed our own values. We've failed our friends. We've failed our spouses. We've failed our families. And we've all failed God. No one is exempt from failure. Not even the people of God in the pages of Scripture. They're not even exempt from failure. You go back to the Old Testament, it just follows all the way through. You can go back to Abraham, the father of God's chosen people. He failed the integrity test. Then you have Moses, God's chosen instrument to deliver the people out of Israel. He failed the faith test. Then you have King David, a man after God's own heart. He failed the purity test and a whole host of other tests. And then you have Elijah, that fiery prophet of God. He failed the emotional intelligence test. And then in the New Testament, we see the same thing. We've, we see these stories of these faith giants falling down. And perhaps the greatest example of this is one of Jesus's closest followers, one of his best friends, Peter, the apostle. See, Peter, from the first time this bold fisherman laid eyes on Jesus he knew there was something unique about Jesus. He left his family. He left his career. He left everything he had to follow Jesus. And he watched in awe as he saw Jesus turn water into wine. He watched in awe as Jesus then walked on water. He watched in awe the way Jesus miraculously fed thousands of people, the way he exercised demons. And he watched in awe as he raised his best friend Lazarus from the dead. See, Jesus was no ordinary man. He was the Messiah. And Peter, the apostle, knew this. He and the other disciples devoted their entire lives to following Jesus. Peter spent three incredible years side by side with the master, with the son of God. He was sold out for Jesus. He was devoted. He was loyal. He was committed. So as we jump this morning into the third part of our renewed series for the new year. We're going to parachute down into a few different parts in John's gospel. We're going to cover a lot of ground today, so bear with me. I'll get you out by six o'clock tonight. <laughs> so we're going to start in John chapter 13. John chapter 13. We're parachuting down first on, this is the night when Jesus, um, the night before Jesus is executed. He, start, he tells his disciples um, that his death is imminent and that he has to go somewhere. And then they ask, they want to know, well, where are you going? And Jesus says, well, where I'm going, you can't yet come with me. So John chapter 13, verse 36, Simon Peter said to Jesus, Lord, where are you going? And Jesus answered him, where I'm going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow me afterward. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. See that phrase, I will lay down my life for you. That's a phrase that's typical of Peter, right? He was that bravado type man, that type A personality, that go-getter, that fighter. So when Jesus tells of his death, Peter rejects that idea and says that Jesus won't die. I'll lay down my life for you if I have to. Verse 38, Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. 
See, Peter is so confident in his own faithfulness. He's so confident in his own self-righteousness. But Jesus warns him against this self-confidence. So then what Jesus does is he leads the disciple to the Garden of Gethsemane to enter into a, a very intentional, serious time of prayer. But while Jesus is praying in agony, Peter and the other disciples start dozing off. They could hardly keep their eyes open. But in no time, Peter wakes to find himself witnessing Jesus' arrest and betrayal as a group of soldiers and officers show up to, to arrest Jesus and bring him to trial. So what does the, fe- the fierce Peter do in this instance? Well, if you remember, he, he draws out his sword, right? Because this is Peter. Ain't nobody taking Jesus. He draws out his sword. He swings it, and he chops the ear off of the high priest's servant, Malchus. And Jesus rebukes Peter because Jesus didn't need his help. And Jesus restores the man's ear. So Peter and the disciples then watch as Jesus is led away captive, and they scatter in fear and confusion. They have no idea what's going on, but Peter eventually snaps out of his panic, and he follows uh, far behind the procession that's leading Jesus to trial. So now we're going to jump into John chapter 18. John chapter 18, starting in verse 15, says, Simon Peter followed Jesus, and so did another disciple. Since that disciple was known to the high priest, he entered with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest, but Peter stood outside at the door. So the other disciple, who was known to the high priest, went out and spoke to the servant girl who kept watch at the door and brought Peter in. The servant girl at the door said to Peter, you also are not one of this man's disciples, are you? He said, I am not. Now the servants and officers had made a charcoal fire because it was cold, and they were standing and warming themselves. Peter also was with them, standing and warming himself. See, in the cold courtyard of the high priest, Peter faces the first question, and it's one that has to do with his association with Jesus. And it's asked in such a way, it's a question that's, that, that's very, um, it's almost like an accusation the way she asks it. And so the question demands either a declaration of allegiance or one of denial. So what does Peter choose? He chooses denial. In his three words, I am not, I'm not a follower of this man. Peter, the rock upon which Jesus said he would build his church, crumbles. He crumbles under the weight of fear and uncertainty. In these moments, he abandons everything he learned and experienced with Jesus. And then as the night goes on, the accusations persist. Verse 25. Now Simon Peter was standing still by that charcoal fire and warming himself. So they said to him, you also are not one of his disciples, are you? He denied it and said, I am not. There's a second failure, his second denial of Jesus, right? Maybe he's thinking now, all right, after these two times, everybody's going to leave me alone. I won't get asked again. But no, Peter had to go cut off someone's ear. So now he identified himself and he, he makes himself known because of that action. Verse 26, one of the servants of the high priest, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, asked, did I not see you in the garden with him? Peter again denied it. And at once, a rooster crowed. Three times, 
Peter denied knowing Jesus three times. Can you imagine the guilt and devastation Peter felt in those moments? Once that rooster crowed, it must have just all hit him. See, as someone who bragged about his loyalty and his devotion to Jesus, Peter failed in the worst possible way. He probably felt like he had hit a dead end in following Christ. Can you relate to that? Maybe you, like Peter, feel like a failure. Maybe your love for Jesus has grown cold over the course of of an extended period of time. And maybe, like Peter, you need to learn the same lesson about the grace of Jesus. Which brings us to our first truth this morning. And it's that failures are not dead ends, but doorways to grace. Failures are not dead ends, but doorways, entryways to the grace of God. See, Peter's story here shows us that failures don't have to be dead ends. God could take our failures and he could shape them into doorways that lead us to experience more and more of his goodness and his grace and his love. This is true with Zacchaeus that we saw two weeks ago. It's true with Paul, as we saw last week. And as we're going to see shortly, Jesus doesn't just write Peter off after his failure, after his denials. He invites Peter back. As I once heard it said that the pages of the New Testament are a gallery, not of flawless saints, but a museum of failed discipleship. Pages in the New Testament are is a showcase, a museum of failed discipleship. The Bible is completely honest in laying bare the raw truth that not one of us is exempt from failures, not even the people who spent three years side by side with Jesus. So wherever you are in your journey today, be encouraged to know that you've not reached the point of no return. As long as you're living and breathing, you have not gone to that point. Jesus stands ready to turn your failures into open doorways to experience his grace in a whole new, fresh way. If you return to him, he will give you a fresh start. So not long then after his denial of Jesus, Peter and the others go through the traumatic experience of being eyewitnesses to Jesus's brutal execution Then, three days later, they witnessed a world-changing resurrection. But through the whirlwind of all of this, Peter still feels like an absolute failure. And what do you do when you feel like a failure? You tend to go and retreat to what's familiar, right? What's comforting. That's exactly what Peter did. He retreats to the familiar ways of his old life. He goes back to fishing. Picking up the story in John chapter 21 now, verse 3. Simon Peter said to them, I am going fishing. They, the disciples, said to him, we'll go with you. They went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Now, I can't help but imagine as I was reading this that that Peter, I can't help but imagine him playing in his mind over and over again that time three years before this when Jesus said to Peter, follow me and I will make you a fisher of men. But he failed. So he retreated from becoming a fisher of men, and he's going back to fishing for fish, and he's not even succeeding there. They caught nothing. Verse 4, just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore. 
Yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? They answered him, no. He said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you'll find some. So they cast it and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. That disciple whom Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, it is the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment for he was stripped for work and he threw himself into the sea. See, when Peter learns that this uh, strange but very familiar voice was the voice of Jesus, something begins to awaken inside of Peter, right? In his uh, impulsive uh, ways that was very typical of Peter, he leaps overboard, splashing through the waves to get to shore to see Jesus while he leaves the other disciples to haul in the huge catch of fish. Verse 8, the other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish for they were not far from the land, but about a hundred yards off. When they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid out on it and bread. Remember one of the last times Peter was around a charcoal fire? The night of his betrayal. Right? The night he betrayed, denied Jesus. He was in the high priest's court, in the courtyard around the charcoal fire. See, that charcoal fire was the backdrop to Peter's greatest failure. It represented his lowest point, that moment of, of, of intense fear and weakness. But now, on the shores of the Sea of Galilee, that charcoal fire is cast in a completely different light. Right? It now becomes the setting for a profound moment of grace and restoration. Jesus, in his resurrected body, doesn't confront Peter with his failures. Jesus feeds Peter. See, let this remind you then that your moments of failure can become the very places where you encounter the grace of Christ most profoundly. So when you find yourself looking back on those courtyard moments of life, Remember that Jesus is ready to meet you with a shoreline breakfast. Amen? So the disciples arrive on shore with their fish, but Jesus has fish already prepared for them. Notice that. And that's a beautiful reminder there that before we even recognize our need, before we even finish our work, Jesus is already making provision for us. But he'll still catch, uh, cook up some more of their catch. Verse 10. And Jesus said to them, Bring some of the fish that you've just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore, full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Now none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. See, understand that for Peter, this meal was a meal of restoration, Right? It was Peter who betrayed Christ. The onus for uh, making restoration, you would think, would be on Peter. You would think he would have to make, take some kind of initiative in atoning for his denial of Christ before enjoying fellowship again with Jesus. But see, while Peter returned to fishing, right, he was looking to make an escape. He wasn't looking to make amends. Jesus pursues Peter in grace. He takes the initiative in preparing the meal for Peter and his disciples before they even arrived. Verse 13. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them. And so with the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised 
from the dead. See, this meal here echoes the Last Supper, right, where Jesus took the bread and gave it to each of them, symbolizing his soon-to-be body that would be broken. But there's something different this time, because now, as Jesus gives each of them some bread and some fish, you have to imagine that the disciples notice something this time. What they notice is now the nail-scarred wrists of Jesus as he's passing the bread and the fish to them. And what a beautiful reminder that must have been for Peter as he looked down and received the bread and the fish from Jesus and saw the scars in his wrist, knowing that his denial had already been atoned for by the work of Christ on the cross. So we're reminded again that our failures are not dead ends, but they're doorways into grace. Every single doorway built by the shed blood and crucified body of our Lord Jesus. So when we receive from Jesus new mercy, when you receive from Jesus fresh grace, here's what it does, is it begins to rekindle a little bit of that flame in you. You begin to find again your passion for Jesus, which leads to our second truth this morning. And it's that the foundation of a fresh start is love for Jesus. If you want a fresh start, you start by loving Jesus. See, now that Jesus fed Peter and the disciples, right? I, he, Jesus is smart. He wasn't expecting the disciples to make any kind of wise decisions on empty stomachs, right? We're men. That's how it works. So now that Jesus fed Peter, though, he gives Peter a chance to reaffirm his love for him. Not once, but three times. So Peter, Jesus is going to ask Peter three different questions to help Peter express the priority of his love. Verse 15, when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. See, Jesus turns to Peter, not with a rebuke for his failure, but with a question that cuts right to the heart. Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Now notice Jesus doesn't say Peter. Remember, it, it was Simon. Jesus changed his name to Peter or, or Cephas, which means rock. But now he's saying Simon, son of John. He's trying to remind Peter of the humble origins that he had, of where he came from. So he knows that without Christ, he's nothing. He says, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? So we imagine Jesus is pointing to something when he said these, but we're not told what the these represents. It's possible Jesus could mean, do you love me more than you love these other disciples? Or do you love me more than these other disciples love me because you claimed to have 100% love for me? Or Jesus could mean, do you love me more than the fish the nets and the boat, do you love me more than your comforts and your careers and that which brings you security? Now, it's possible that scripture is unclear at this point in order to make the these here apply to anything and everything in our lives that tries to steal our loyalty and our love from Jesus. So Peter's response, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. This is not just an answer. It's an acknowledgement that Jesus already perfectly knows what's on Peter's heart. Right, despite his past failures, Peter's declaration of love lays the foundation for a fresh start for him. So Jesus responds to Peter with a pastoral invitation. He says, feed my lambs. 
Now here, Jesus is calling Peter to nurture and care for the young and the vulnerable in the church, marking the beginning of Peter's renewal here of his restoration. Verse 16, Jesus said to Peter a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. Now, Jesus is asking another question here, digging deeper to uncover even deeper layers of Peter's heart. Jesus is asking Peter if he loves him with God's love, the deepest kind of love there is. Simon, son of John, do you love me? Now, the Greek word uh, used for love here is agape, the, uh, the agape love. That's that, uh, the love of God, that highest love form of love, that sacrificial, uh, self-giving, costly kind of love. It's a, a love that goes far beyond just emotional feelings. It's a love that's loyal regardless of the circumstances. You can think of agape love as 100% love, right? So Jesus is saying, si- Simon, son of John, do you agape me? Do you love me 100%? Yes, Lord, you know that I phileo you. You know that I love you. See, Peter doesn't use the same word for love that Jesus uses. He uses the word phileo, a word that means brotherly love and affection. You could think of that as like a 60% love, right? So Peter once claimed that he loved Jesus more than anyone and everything. He boasted in his 100% love for Jesus, but he's humbled now. So Jesus expands Peter's ministry. He's expanding his ministry even though Peter can't admit to 100% love. He says to Peter, tend my sheep. So feed my lambs before, now tend my sheep. See, Peter's job now is going to entail more than just feeding the word of God to the young and the vulnerable. Now he's going to help protect and nurture the entire flock, including the mature believers. Verse 17, Jesus said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him a third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. See, Jesus again asks Peter if he loves him. But here's what's interesting. This third time around, Jesus drops down to Peter's level. And he says, hey, Peter, do you phileo me? Do you love me with the 60% love that you profess to love me with? Now realize that this third question hit Peter like a ton of bricks. Three questions for his three denials. His genuine response to Jesus, though, is it's a confession of his honest but imperfect love. He says, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. So Jesus gives Peter a final directive. He says, feed my sheep. Feed my lambs, tend my sheep, feed my sheep. And with these words, Jesus seals Peter's restoration and reaffirms his calling and his role in the church. See, Peter's journey from denial all the way over to restoration reveals that what Jesus wants from us most is our love. It's that simple. 
our fresh starts, our renewals, our revivals, our resets, they're all built on the bedrock of love. See, don't miss what Jesus is doing here with Peter. The reason Jesus asks Peter three times, or one of the reasons, was to implant in Peter's mind and heart that the foundation of his fresh start was not his own self-determination, not his own self-reliance, but it was love for Jesus. See, self-determination is the very thing that Jesus wanted to break inside Peter. He wanted Peter's love for him to be the foundation for everything Peter did in life and ministry moving forward. And the same is true for you and me. We will only experience lasting renewal when our first love is nothing and no one other than Jesus. Everything good. Everything good that happens in the life of a follower of Christ flows from a heart that loves and delights in Jesus. Our fruitfulness in ministry, our victory over sin, our fulfilling of the calling that God gave to us, our ability to love others well, all of these things flow from a heart that is sold out for Jesus, even an imperfect heart that's only capable of imperfect love. So how do you practically stir up love for Jesus then? What does this look like? Well, we could follow Peter's example. First, we confess and repent of anything that's hindering our love for Jesus. Then we spend time with Jesus. We spend time with him in prayer. We spend time with him meditating on the scriptures, learning about his heart, hearing his voice from God's word. We allowing Jesus to heal our hearts as he implants deeper into our minds, into our hearts, the reality of who we are and what he did for us. And then as he begins to rekindle that passion inside of you, that that love inside of you, then you step out in faith and you serve him and you begin obeying him. See, after Peter affirmed his love for Jesus three times, what did Jesus immediately call him to do? He called him to feed and tend and care for the flock. Although Peter had failed, Jesus is calling him back to a life of service and a life of ministry. Why? Because love for Jesus always expresses itself in love for God's people. Love for Jesus always expresses itself in love for others. Peter was restored, and now with his new foundation built around the love of Christ, not built on his own self-reliance or independence, now Peter is able to express that love to others. He had the right foundation this time. Which leads us to our third point. A heart that knows love for Jesus is a life that shows love for others. A heart that knows love for Jesus is a life that shows love for others. When our passion for Jesus is revived, we become conduits of his love and his grace to everyone around us. When our love for Jesus overflows, it it bubbles out and boils over into everybody that's in our path. This is such an important truth for the church today. We need to hear this. See, it's so easy to get, oh man, so utterly frustrated with all the evil in the world and and all the darkness and all the garbage that we see day in and day out. It's so easy to get frustrated with all this stuff to the point that we begin to emphasize doctrinal precision or um, moral purity or spiritual passion. We begin to emphasize these things over love as if they're somehow more important than love. We divorce these things from actually loving the messy people within the church and outside the church. See, the distinguishing mark of being a follower of Jesus is love. 
That's what sets us apart, our love. We represent Jesus best when we love others with his supernatural love. But this kind of love only comes from knowing and loving Jesus first. We love because he first loves us. Remember that Peter was only able to admit to his 60% kind of love, that phileo, brotherly, affection kind of love. But even so, Jesus restores Peter. And Jesus doesn't just restore Peter, Jesus elevates Peter. Then he has some final words for Peter. And now he assures Peter that his love for Jesus will one day reach that agape level of sacrificial 100% love. Verse 18, truly, truly, I say to you, Peter, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you're old, you'll stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. See, Jesus is telling Peter here that Peter's going to be called on to die for Jesus. In some years, he's going to lose his freedom. So he's going to get locked away and he's going to stretch out his hands and die. And this squares with church tradition, which teaches that Peter was crucified in Rome on an inverted cross. He, wanted, he didn't want to... Um, it's, uh, church tradition says that he didn't want to be crucified the same way Jesus was because he wasn't worthy. So he has to be crucified on an inverted cross. But see, here, here's what's, what's really important. The difference between Peter's 60% uh, um, phileo love at the seashore and then the 100% agape love that we see when he martyrs, when he, he gives himself over to martyrdom for Jesus later on in life, there's something that happened really important between that 60% and that 100%. The day of Pentecost. The day of Pentecost when Jesus sent the Holy Spirit to indwell his children. See, we can't, in our own strength, love agape-like. That's the love of God. We can only love 100% if we're allowing Jesus to live his life through us and to love through us. That's the only way that's possible. Verse 19, this he said to show Peter by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to Peter, follow me. So in the end, Peter discovered that his rock was Jesus Christ and Christ alone. He learned that true courage comes not from self-determination or self-reliance, but in surrender to Jesus and in love for him and for others. So here's the truth I want you to take home this morning. There's one thing that you walk away with. It's this. The most important thing you can do is love Jesus. That's the most important thing you can do. It's such a simple statement, but it is vitally true. The most important thing you can do, the most crucial choice you'll ever make, the best path you'll ever tread is in loving Jesus. Loving Jesus should be our number one priority in life. Not just believing facts about him, but enjoying an intimate relationship with him. Enjoying his presence daily. Centering our lives around the gospel and around our growing relationship with him. See, Jesus simplified all of the Old Testament laws into one simple word. He said, love. Love. In Matthew 22, we see one of the teachers of the law going to Jesus. And say, he says, teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Of all the 600 and some Old Testament laws, which is the greatest? And Jesus said, 
You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and all your strength. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is just like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and prophets. In other words, the main thing is keeping the main thing, the main thing. And the main thing is to love Jesus and love others. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Do this and everything else will follow. Yet too often, how, how much do we confuse intimacy with activity? Right? We cram our calendars with good things, but we neglect the best thing, loving Jesus. We allow busyness to replace closeness with Christ. We allow our programs to eclipse at the true passion that we should have for Jesus. See, we can serve Jesus out of drudgery and not delight. We can give to Jesus out of duty and not out of love. So ask yourself, do I love Jesus? If you find that your love for him has grown cold, return to him. When Peter hit rock bottom after betraying Christ, Jesus restored him. He restored him, and that's exactly what Jesus does with us. His mercies renew every morning. So if your devotional life needs CPR, go to Jesus. Admit where your love has grown distant and cold and return to your first love. If you failed, turn to Jesus. If you denied Christ with your words or if you've denied Jesus with your actions, turn to him. If you've walked away from him, it's not too late to turn back to him. If you think that you've hit a dead end in your relationship with him, you haven't. Turn to him. Loving Jesus is the most important thing you can ever do. So may we say along with Peter, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for your great love for us. Your great love for us that was demonstrated in sending Jesus to die for our sins. Lord, I pray that you would teach every single one of us this morning and this week, Lord, what it truly means to love you. Lord, what it truly means to experience your agape love. And then, Lord, how you can live and love in us and through us for the benefit of others. Lord, for anybody in this room whose love for you has died out, has fizzled out, has grown cold and distant, Lord, minister to them right now, Lord, letting them know that it's not too late, that you want to restore you want to redeem, that you want to renew and revive. Lord, so I pray that you would revive, that you would revive us. Lord, that you would implant within us a deeper love and passion for Jesus. Lord, the world is dark and evil and hurting and so desperately in need of your love. Empower us to be conduits of your grace and your love to others. And Lord, teach us day by day to love you 
more and more and more as we trust you and depend on you to live your life through us. Lord, may the most important thing that any single one of us does this week, may it be loving you. All God's children said this in Jesus' name. Amen.